This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to our 19th annual Writers' Symposium by the Sea at Point Loma Nazarene University. I'm Dean Nelson on the journalism faculty at the university. And this is a joint effort program tonight with the Storyline Conference and Donald Miller. Don is best known probably for books like Blue Like Jazz and his A Million Miles in a Thousand Years, and then uh, the Storyline Conference that he has started. And with Don is Anne Lamott, author of several fiction and nonfiction books, more recently uh, Some Assembly Required, Help, Thanks, and Wow. That's all one book, right? That isn't three one book. separate books. There isn't Help. We're at now. It's one book. All right, one book. All right. And uh, more recently, Stitches. Uh, Anne has uh, been with us. This is her third time with our Writer's Symposium and always a favorite. Uh, Welcome to Writer's Symposium and Storyline, Anne. Thank you. And you've got such a distinct voice in your writing. And I'm just wondering, was, is there a time in your professional writing life where you just started to feel like, yeah, this, this is my voice now. I'm no, longer, I'm no longer really trying. Or I don't know if you're like some people who imitated other type voices or writers first. But th- the reason I'm asking is that I think there are a lot of people who, started, who have started writing trying to use an Anne Lamott-type voice. And, and, um, and hopefully they've, they've gotten past that. I confess, maybe I've done that once or twice. But, but it, was there a time, is there a time where you just feel like, okay, this is my authentic voice now? Well, that's a good question. I, um, of course, you always um, sound pretty much like you really are from when you're a little child. And, but you figure out what people love and you figure out what um, brings you joy to um, playfully incorporate into conversation. Like, I hate puns. Puns for me are not playful. They're just, like, about rage. So, um, I've never heard puns and rage yeah, used in the same no, sense. Yeah, no, no, it's, it's true. And, um, but I was a, per- a child who was bullied a lot because I looked so different and I was very sensitive and very smart. I just got bullied, bullied, bullied. And I learned to use humor to diffuse that and to um, kind of get revenge and to get people on my side again. And, uh, and I, so I was always funny. Um, and I think God just made me this way. And, and then when I started to write more seriously uh, in my late teens, I felt so insecure about how seriously I take the world, which I do. I always, from about three years old, just find it, find it kind of heartbreaking to be here for, for people and children and animals. It was a, I was raised in the 50s, and, and, and it, there was a tremendous amount of domestic violence and untreated alcoholism. And, um, and so I always really took things very seriously, and I always had a very open heart, and I grieved, and it was like... Um, not attractive to the people in my family. This was um, the Eisenhower 50s and before the women's movement and before gay liberation, you were not supposed to be having these feelings that were not charming. 
And um, <laughs> so I got sent to my room, and I, I just got shamed into being an, and a more adorable sort of person in the world. And I could charm... How'd that work out for you? Pretty... Well, you know, I also luckily took a lot of drugs and drank. <laughs> and... Um, and I am hilarious with a few too many in a small crowd. But I haven't had a drink or a drug in 27 years, so... But I do remember, I was very funny. Uh, I was very funny until the crying would... The inevitable crying. But, um... So, um, when I started writing, I, um... I was trying to be who everyone had always loved me to be. Which I really think is what Storyline is about. Is breaking free of who everybody has always loved you to be. Yeah. To have the one precious life you were given to live and be here for. And I, uh, I wrote my first novel about my father's brain cancer, and it was published when I was 26. And the first review I ever got was from P- Publishers Weekly. It's a pre prepub review. It's called for the booksellers, and um, it said something almost verbatim like, um, "Whatever meager charms this book possesses." Not that I memorized it. <laughs> Whatever meager book charms this book possess, possesses are marred by the author's constant show-offy overkill. And it changed no. me. And I, because it was true. Because what I needed to do to people, uh, to do was for people to see, yes, I write about very serious stuff. I write about loss. I write about true things. I write about our true heart experience of being human. But no, I'm not depressed. I'm not like a buzzkill. I'm like this fun, happy, happening girl. And um, so then it really took a long time to be able to claim my humor since I didn't want to use it to convince people that I wasn't a loser. Right? Mm-hmm. And so, but the thing that happens if you're a writer, and you, both of you can attest to this, you're an okay writer because of the quality of your best friends and your editor. And they take out all the stuff that is you trying too hard yeah. and you trying to charm people. Because charming me is not probably going to be nourishing, it's not going to heal. And, and I don't, uh, you know, who has, t- who has the time? So I have always had brilliant friends and editors. And they have helped me um, find the balance between being a person who has a sense of humor and being a person who, a little child still, I'll be 60 next month, but a little child still who finds it pretty heartbreaking for most people to be here at all. So... um, Do you feel like you've got it now, though? I mean, when you you write, are you thinking, yeah, okay, this is me? I don't try to deliberately write in in, uh, what we would say is my voice, but... I, um, you know, there's just certain things that I think are funny. Like the word bitter is always funny. Like to say, well, you seem bitter. Everybody, see, you, you want to laugh, but you don't know if everyone else will. But it's just very funny. <laughs> you should do it tomorrow. You should seem, say to people, I hope I don't seem bitter. And they will just all <laughs> laugh. They will, I promise. And, um, and there's a certain way I have of, a certain delivery I have that um, I, th- I guess I have honed because I'm working on something right now and I, I can feel myself doing it and I ask myself, is this organic? Is this natural to the rhythm of the telling the story? Or is this me trying to sound like me because you like the last few books or because I'm scared? You know, we're all scared to do something too different. But so it's, it's a pretty complex question. I'd actually love to write about it because I do sound like me and I look just like me too. <laughs> But, um, that's, it. that's okay. Like, people always say, oh, are you animal? I go, no. <laughs> Who's that? 
but I look just like me. And um, <laughs> there's just a voice, like a musician would have certain songs that would come through him or her that, were, that might be somebody who loves acoustic music, which I do, rather than stuff that's more intense or with more um, fingering. In the in the in the strings, and so I, I you know I love plain writing. I also like all everybody. I write what I would love to come upon. You know I love people that will write plainly and not do a lot of pyrotechnical stuff. I don't like wordplay. It makes me very worried. Um, <laughs> I um, I love if people will tell me the truth. If people will just say, "Look, you're, you're a storyteller. You're saying to me, Annie, do you have a minute?" Can I just tell you? And I go, yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's what each, all three of us are saying to all of you. Do you have a minute? And so I, um, um, but I want to tell you true stuff. You know, there's so little truth being told in the popular culture. I just want to t- share my experience, strength, and hope. And, and uh, usually it comes out funny, and I take the stuff out, out that show off the overkill. What's the difference between a vo- finding your voice and having a shtick? And I ask yeah. this personally because I'll try to turn something into the publisher and they'll say and I'll think it's good my wife thinks it's wonderful my mother kind of likes it and uh, she doesn't really and the publisher will come back <laughs> she doesn't like it. no my mother likes poems about George W. Bush and that's about it but <laughs> it makes her sad <laughs> But anyway, go on. Most, uh, other, most people like so, it. So the publisher will come back and say, hey, we really miss, you know... The shtick. The shtick. And the shtick is, loser Don finds some wisdom, plays it out in his life, and gets better. Right. Over and over and over again. Right. And, <laughs> and right. sometimes you just don't feel like loser Don. Right. So, but I gotta, you know, so, so there's a wrestling with that. And then also a coming back to it and saying, no, this is not just a shtick. This is really a voice that's been given to you and it works and you know you're just going to sound like this is your Bob Dylan voice and uh, did you ever struggle with shtick versus voice? Well I think shtick see I'm very involved with helping people watch the self-talk because it's such a way of of self-injury and it's so you just don't you don't even notice it the way that you would couch what is um, in fact the gift that you have to offer us is that with your own voice, there's 1,700 people here and we're all, we all know secretly we're kind of losers and we, 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 we fake it. We've had to fake a lot of patience and, and uh, equanimity and we do the best we can and it's pretty disappointing and um, some days go better than others and some days you just hate everybody, you know? And that's the story. Right? And, and that's, um, and the story is something happens where you, and it's, but it's not your shtick. It's your capturing of the one human story that there is, which is that we screw up right and left. We usually don't know what we're doing. The flashlight is so small that we're given to see by. And, um, and we tell the story. In a, like, I know when you were a child, like when I was a child, I was the one people wanted to tell the story that happened collectively to us on the blacktop, right? That the three of us were here, there were a few more other people, and something happened there. Someone got in trouble or got injured or this or that happened or a parent came and there was drama around this parent. And when it happened, we're both going, 
whoa, because that's the most human experience of all is, whoa, and we want you to tell, what just happened? Well, I was one of those children too. I could tell you the story. I could figure out a place to start. That's like two-thirds of the problem, right? Okay, well, we were all sitting around, and it was morning recess, and J.B. Halpern's mother showed up, and no one had seen her for weeks. And, and, but you would say, and so, and then what, and then, okay, and then this thing, okay, and then I forgot to say. This one thing happened, and then the whistle blew, but then J.B. Halpern's sister, Robin, and, and then, okay, and then, and then we can all figure out what actually we all just went through. But that's a gift that you were chosen to, to manifest instead of being somebody that could edit the gift, which is also huge, or to be the person that could put it to music. You could say, okay, find a place to start, find the lily pads on, you know, on the pond that you're going to take us all across, and then sort of show us how to get out of the water. And then we go, oh my God, and then we can tell it ourselves later. So that would be my version of what you do. It wouldn't be shtick. Now see, with me, because I have to really watch the self-talk, which I think is very malignant, the, bo- the bad body talk and the stuff, I would say, if I were not being conscious, I would say, you know, all of my stories are about the exact same thing. They're the same thing. I'm all caught up in myself. I'm completely irritated with everyone. And, I'm, um, and I can see that things aren't going to go my way, which is, you know, the, the most important thing, that, that they... <laughs> that everybody do what I wish they would do that would make us all be able to relax and that we can all figure out who to blame and feel good about that together as, as one. So, um, and then something happens. I get injured or I get lost or I um, get pierced and I'm returned to the, to the holy moment. I am returned to the present. I am returned to my breath, the umbilical breath that connects me to the universe and to the Holy Spirit and to you and to Dean and to, and to you. And then I can tell you, this is what happened. I actually thought it was a disaster. It gave me me back. It was actually the movement of grace, but grace doesn't look like ice skaters, you know? It, it, it looks like us. We're what grace looks like. And so, um, you know, I'm putting together these new pieces and the writer is defined by having terrible self-esteem and this raging wounded ego and a narcissistic personality disorder, right? I mean, you, me, <laughs> Dean, well, and uh, well, no, maybe, no, maybe you two. definitely no, Dean. I'm, I'm quite confident it's... You none two. of us have any confidence. If you're a writer, this is the good news. None of us have any confidence. We don't know if our voice is any good, but we just do it. That's all that separates the three of us from a lot of other writers. So I would say, oh, these are all the same stories I'm writing. But they're not. New things have happened. New things have come. It's like the tide pools, you know. New waves have come in and they've brought brought krill and new bits of shell and new bits of seaweed. And a child looking over the tide pools can see something completely different and be blown away. I remember where I was when I read page 49 and 50 of Traveling Mercies, which was my introduction to your book. Stunning. I don't know what they are. Time stopped. Jesus is the little cat running along. Do you, and, and the thing that I felt was, oh, this is my story. And then I, I, I was woken up from that when a friend of mine, who's a very conservative young evangelical girl, said, you know, I read Anne Lamott. She just tells my story. And I literally went there, and she's not telling your story at all. Right. <laughs> the woman has nothing in right. common with you. 
Right. And then I suddenly right. went, wait, that woman has nothing in common with me. Right. You have this amazing ability to make us all feel like your story is our story. But that's and exactly what so you're different. doing. But what are the commonalities? What are the commonalities that you're looking for in the writing? Is it love? Is it loss? Is it loneliness? Is it hope? Is it, what, what do you say, this is the common human story, and I'm going to focus on this? Rather oh, than just yeah. narcissistically right. focusing on your own story. Well, I think it's true what I said to, to Dean in the beginning, which is that you write what you'd love to come upon. And the stuff that where you, you and me were, and Bob Goff, and the people are writing like kind of hilarious, weird, spiritual encouragement stories. Our Olympic rings are really overlapped. We're writing about what it's really like. We're writing about what we go through in an ordinary human day where it's um, where we are tired and we can't think as straight as we want to or as we used to and, and people are really, really suffering and people are behaving horribly and we don't know whether we're going to be okay. Also, we don't know if we can keep the scam up and get another book out of it or, you know, we're just thinking these same thoughts. Yeah, she got you, didn't she? <laughs> You know, I mean, talk about, in my case, I would say talk about beating a dead horse, but that's what you were saying. You were saying, yeah, I've got this shtick. They want this shtick. But it's just that I tell the same story. I'm a human, like what E.E. Cummings called a human merely being. The people I love are going through unfathomable suffering. And some of them are young, and some of them are children that are going to die, and some of them are... are, um, People that have been institutional, I mean, you know, peep the, the, the run of, of, of a human life. And I'm just telling the stories about it because 100% of the time, in my experience, that you and I wear the same pair of glasses as Christians, 100% of the time, grace bats last. You don't give up till the miracle. And if you haven't gotten the miracle, the story's not over. And for some reason, we kind of wait it out. We kind of, it's kind of like noodling around. I mean, I have to edit out a lot of noodling, you know. It's like I have a note on my computer that says, get on with it. So the question is, um, how do we trust that? It's like, how does a musician trust that people want to keep hearing the same old songs? How does a minister trust that the people are fed by the litany, by the liturgy, by the repetition, by, by that taze, taze music that's just, it's what is comforting to us as human beings. It's a rhythm. It's the rhythm of a newborn who can hear one thing that seems to be constant and is connected to warmth and food. It's like, the, the, we're just, I don't know, like I'm not Susan Sontag or Margaret Atwood, and, and I'm, um, I have this one batch of stories. It's like there was this guy that um, was a priest, a Catholic priest who was instrumental in helping AA get off the ground, although he was not an alcoholic himself, and he said, sometimes I think that heaven is just a new pair of glasses, and I would say that that is the story you and I are both excited to tell. We see it, we tell someone, and then we get that feeling in us of, ah, right, because that's a story I'd love to come upon. When you tell it in a blog, I go, thank you. I've heard you tell it with different characters, different details, different eras. But it's the story, it's the heartbeat, it's the rhythm, it's this truth to a person I love and trust. So, you know, I draw close. So, so are you constantly looking for material, though? Or do you feel like, like the tide pool uh, uh, image that you used where it's just constantly filling and refreshing? I'm, I'm remembering one of your, uh, a story from one of your previous books about a, a, a man who was mean to his dog. Right. Yeah, and, and so, I mean, when you saw that or when you see anything, you, you, are you consciously saying, 
oh, I'm going to write about that. Oh, no, because life was going on, and I was with my son and our dog 20 years ago, and a man on this little beach at San Quentin, curiously enough, I started being mean to his dog and I was trying to protect my son and, and my dog and my, the little one inside me from the toxic energy that somebody being cruel to a dog is exuding. You know, we're on the beach build, building altars to God and we're laughing. We're doing that, you know, carbonated holiness of laughter and giggling and a man's hurting his dog. And I kind of got us out of there. But then I started wanting to tell the story you know, because, but it doesn't, I don't sit there going, oh, this is great. You know, I also have a pen in my back pocket too. <laughs> but um, I mean, sometimes I do, don't get me wrong. But, uh, but usually I'm just having a life experience. And, and later, it's like the new pair of glasses. You get a tiny bit of distance from it. And you start as a writer to go, hi, oh, I wonder. I wonder, I always, because I have such terrible self-esteem, think I wonder if it's a strong enough story. Because, I, it, because yeah. it usually has to point to something bigger, doesn't it? It has to ultimately be the one story I, I know, which is that grace bats last, that there is meaning, that there is meaning. And if we're not finding it, it's because the story's not over and more will be revealed. But, you know, I, um, lately I've had a, um, I've been trying to put together a collection of both old and new pieces that are really about the, the way that a lot of the stories that I would always say were kind of sad and then touching and there was a little bit of hope are actually stories about victory. You know, they're about people showing up in situations of such deep grief and catastrophe and just sitting there and just being willing to show up and sit there and feel terrible with a beloved person or a community and suffering. And, um, but I suddenly realized another way to tell it would be this is victory over the nihilistic experience that that the good suffer so and that um, it's just a pretty barbaric planet we live on and and, you know we're a we're a a hostile species you know Cain is still killing Abel every day and um, but so I thought there's another way to couch it but then I start to get that panicky jungle drum feeling of the well is run dry you know it's all over for England my mother was English and um, <laughs> so so battle cry was it's all over for England you know and the Germans are going to beat the, b- both Ger- England and the hockey team and the soccer teams and the and I always feel that we're all doomed I would say both of our stories often pass through it's like Pilgrim's progress through that vanity fair first and then through the place where you go it's all over it's all hopeless and you're sick of your own self that's where the pain comes from of that own you that graft rejection from your own self so lately I've been thinking um this kind of panicky feeling because I want to do another book pretty quickly like I did some um no stitches and help thanks well and um and I just start to get that fearful feeling of, can I, am I going to be able to do this again? You still have it. Yeah, yeah I don't, and I don't actually have it today because you take the action and the insight follows. You don't think your way out of that hopelessness or that used upness or that sick of your own selfedness, for which the Germans undoubtedly have a word. But, um, <laughs> but we'll say sick of your own selfedness for now because it's a very, very deeply, profoundly human. Um, reality so um, but the thing was you take the action you take the action and I 
got my work done. You know, I had a four-year-old, my grandson, I had my son, I had two dogs, a very, very ill dog, I had a house that had all this stuff going on, and I said, this, they are all gone at quarter of nine. And I said to myself, Annie, at quarter of nine, we are sitting down. And I, it's not like I go, well, if you feel like it, well, you're flying to San Diego, so anyone would understand if you didn't. But you know what? I had three hours, precious time to, of my own. And I did it. I sat down like I would with you. You know, I'd say, Dean, you have three hours. We're leaving. We're done with you too. But no, we wouldn't. We'd say, we're leaving. We're going to go find some real apples. We're going to do, <laughs> you know, whatever the day, however it unfurls. And you have till 12. That's three hours. Three hours by the, you know, algorithms of writing is about two hours of writing, right? Two hours, 10 minutes. And we said, Dean, do it. And you would do it because you'd have a voice encouraging you to. Yeah, but wouldn't I rather check my emails? Yeah. And, and, you and, get maybe, to, see, and yeah. maybe see what my hair would look like if I parted it on the yeah. right yeah. Instead, of, instead of on the left. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And I want to see if I can get my arms to look like Michelle Obama's by my 60th birthday, which is um, April 10th. Yeah. But, um, you know, you get to do it. I, I'm right now, I told you guys, I'm not eating sugar right now. And I get to have sugar. I can go back to the hotel and eat my body weight in Snickers if I want. But it's going to mean that my mind isn't going to be as clear. Yeah. And it means I'm going to pay for it. It's like Carolyn Mace, who I actually really like, who wrote Why People Don't Heal and How They Can. She said, every day you get $100 in your psychic account. Every day. Every single person here. George Bush, Dick Cheney, you know... <laughs> The, the most awful sport, sport uh, tennis sport in the professional game of tennis. Everybody, you get $100. You get to spend it as you are led to spend it. But it's going to be gone. You know, you can spend $27 trying to get your bald spots not to show. You know, or you can spend like $18 trying to save and fix somebody because you get kind of a thrill of power and superiority by, by rescuing people. But you can spend $18 on that, right? And so pretty soon, like, you know, you have to ask yourself, do, I, I'm gonna, I have like $50 I can spend on the writing. I think I actually want to spend about seven online. I hmm. do want to spend seven online, but I want to spend 43, I want to spend 37 writing. But you get to ask yourself, how am I going to spend this one precious life and day I have here? I would rather do anything but write. Still? After all the books you've, you've written, all, all the columns you've done, you'd still try to avoid it? Oh, yeah. It, oh, yeah. I would, what I'd like to do is to be with my dogs, my grandson. I love to be at church. I love to read The New Yorker on the couch. I love to read great writing. My life, for all of us, for almost everyone here, I bet, has been about being a reader. I'm a person who was found by the written, by chapter books at five years old. And I'm a person who had almost 60 who will go home tonight in a strange town, crawl in bed with a chapter book, get found, get lost, get found. Like you were saying that people, that people might see a reflection in our work and I'll find a reflection in what I'm reading. I'll go, that is exactly right. That's what I was trying to say. So, um, no, it's very hard for me. And um, it doesn't come easily. I don't have confidence. I... Um, I'm easily distracted like a rhesus monkey. And um, no, you know what I'm like? I'm like a dog with a chew toy. 
I'm like with a dog with like a little bit of leather ear. And I'm like, okay, all right, now, okay, right, okay, now. And then I, then I fling it, you know, I fling the leather pig's ear, and I, then I chase it down, okay, and I got it, and I got it, and I got it, it's really good, then fling it again, you know, because, you know, maybe it was the drugs, I don't know, but, I don't know, but that, but that is what it's like for me to sit down. And what I do is, I do it as a debt of honor, I got, it's like to be a writer is to have been given one of the five golden tickets in the Willy Wonka and the, Char- and the Chocolate, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. It's a gift, of, it's a debt of honor. I do it by prearrangement. I'm strict with myself. I would be strict with you. I would say, you know, just do it. You're going to feel so great all afternoon if you get your work done today. You get to not do it but then you're going to feel really sad. You're going to really feel regretful. And that begins to speak for a whole life. If you've wanted to write, if you've wanted to dance, if you've wanted to join a chorus, if you've wanted to get back to playing piano that you were very good at until other people found it very inconvenient for you to get so lost in your music. And you say, I don't know how long I'm going to live, but I will be playing piano the day I die. Um, and, and I do that with my writing. I say, it's quarter of nine. That I was getting picked up for the airport at 12. I had three hours, 15 minutes, and I'd say I spent two hours and 20 of them writing. And I got something that was a really bad first draft into better shape. <laughs> better shape, you know? And that's all I can do on any given day. You, you've put yourself out there in your especially your memoirs and your fiction too and it's it's come back and probably changed the nature of of your life and how you live and your experiences you and your son sam collaborated on a book and you've written about sam before and your other books from the time he was an infant and uh i'm wondering if you ever sat down with sam and said hey this is what's going to change when you put your life out there i mean was there ever a conversation where you kind of sat him down and, and almost warned him in a way? Well, he has seen me just go through it, you know. He has seen me, some of the pieces I wrote at Salon, I, I would get four and five hundred letters and, and most of them would be just attacks on my character. And in fact, Sam once upon reading them, and it was a story about the one time I slapped him when he was almost 16, and I wrote about it because Grace came into our heart and into our living room and, um, and healed us, and, it, and I thought, wow, every parent here is going to get it, and that's going to be, I'm going to give them the truth that we're all in the same boat, and as I said, some days go better than others, and um, he read the responses, and he wrote to my editor, he said, can I write to your editor, and whose name David, and I said, yeah, and he said, my mother quits, so this was eight years ago at Salon and he said your job as an editor is to protect her so that she can write the very very best stuff she's capable of you didn't protect her because they hadn't warned me about this tidal wave and you know what it's like to get a bad review and you know what it's like to not get reviewed how painful that is you know and the fantasy you have before your work is released into the world of of what a hit it's going to be and what an impression it's going to make and often you just don't hear anything. Sometimes you go, oh, I would have liked this better if. It's like, oh, thank you. Um, But, um, so I said to him, um, 
it's going to be really weird. We are going to get some bad reviews. It was a, a sequel to Operating Instructions. Sam had a child at 19, and my editor had pitched this idea of writing a journal, and I had said, I think it would be exploitive, and my editor said, not if you don't exploit anyone. And so Sam and I had, uh, mostly me, I'd say 80% me, had written a journal of his son's first year. So, um, you know, but the thing was, we were just met with such incredible love. We got some bad reviews, and you know, we did. We did. We got on the New York Times list for a couple of weeks, but not 52 weeks, which is what I've been secretly hoping. And uh, <laughs> and I called him the third week when we fell off. I said, "Oh, Sam, we we." I said, "Oh, I feel," and I felt so sad because I wanted to save my child from not having you know, success and great self-esteem because you just do as a parent, you know, you code black belt codependence and you have to heal from that too. <laughs> Tragically, you do or you hurt your children. But um, I said, oh, Sam, I have bad news. We're not on the list this week. And he goes, God, who cares? <laughs> and um, so mostly that was a good experience. The writing was just like what I've described, that it was not only pulling my own teeth, but it was pulling someone else's teeth. Other people really don't want you to pull their teeth. And uh, this was a, a teenager, you know, with an infant and, and then a, a little baby. And um, so I just told him, I said, I'll do the book if you'll do the book, and you're going to be furious if you agree to it a lot of the time because you're going to have a million things to do besides write this book, besides get your work in. And I'm very strict. I'm strict as a Sunday school teacher. All freedom, all freedom comes from discipline. It does. That's what meditation's about. So freeing your mind by a structure, by, by plugging in, hooking up to a structure. And so... Um, I was very strict, and when I was mad, I said, I'm really mad because you said Saturday, and you didn't get it to me Saturday, and it's Monday, and I gave you two extra days, and then he get it done. So um, I'm, I'm, with, I'm that way with myself with a lot of militant and maternal self-love that my faith and my recovery have given me, the quality of my friendships have given me. So, um, yeah, but we, did, we just had a, we toured together through the country and we just had a beautiful time and then it was fun. We'd go to the hotel room and overeat together, you know, we'd get room service and, and we'd plug into like violent shows. We'd watch like eight law and orders and, um, in a row and, and it was really sweet and, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, you mentioned, you mentioned Sunday school. A lot of the stuff that you have written has included the church that you go to. Why is that such an important thing? And could you tell Don, because he hates church. I know. <laughs> I know, I get it. I have it. a follow-up question about what you do with people who demonize you. That's what <laughs> yeah. I <remember>. yeah. <laughs> Well... I'm not demonizing yeah. Don. It's just, those are the haters. I'm not a hater. His, your mother put him up to that. Something like I that. know. She called right before we went on. Um, I happen to be at probably the only church I would ever be euphoric at. I, I, went, I go to a church. I was going there drunk for a year. I've been at my church 28 years. I've been sober 27, so there's that gap year. Uh, <laughs> And it was very integrated. It was a lot of old black women from the, and men from the South, from the Great Migration. It was a lot of people, that, people with families. It was, it, was, 
it was all the races, it was all the ages, it was intergenerational, it was inner everything. And, and that meant there was room for me, you know? And they didn't try to get me to figure anything out, which was so incredible. They didn't get me to agree that I believe something. They didn't hassle me. They didn't threaten me with home visits. That's the most important thing. <laughs> if there are any ministers here tonight, the most important thing, if you have a newcomer, no home visits. You'll never see them again. They may move. If you accidentally wrote your address down in the narthex, they may move um, to avoid the home visit. Um, they could see that I'm a, I was a very wounded woman and that I was scared and I was nuts. I had three books out. I was pretty successful. I was thin, which I loved. I was like 20 pounds thinner, and I was was dirt poor, dirt poor, borrowing rent. They could just see that I had somehow ended up with my butt on a chair at their church. And it it was like Bob Goff was talking earlier about the scent of the scent of bread, or the scent of croissant, or the scent, the heavenly scent, like the reason realtors bake cookies in houses they want to sell or make toast, you know, and even though there wasn't a particular scent, it was nutritious, and it was like in the cartoons when, when the wife, the, you know, these are like the 50s, so the, the wife bakes cakes and the, the man is a clod and falls asleep in front of the TV, so the clod, but the, she puts the pie on the sill and the finger, the aromatic finger of deliciousness comes and it taps the clod on his chest and he gets up and he falls. That was what I felt. I felt an aromatic drawing towards. I felt something drawing me towards where everything had been this, like I'm very high strung. I probably, it's probably clear. I'm a very high strung person. I'm skittish. I have some mental health issues. I have, you know, I'm like this way and I could do the sacrament of plop because I knew they weren't going to come and try and get me. You know, and I could sit there and I could breathe and I could leave when I had to. I had to leave for the heavy Jesus stuff because I, that's not what I was there for. I was just trying to stay alive. Singing was beautiful and I love to sing. I don't sing well and I sing loudly. And, um, and I'm sometimes, I'm such a space case. I was a five-year-old space case. I'm worse. And I'm sometimes singing the wrong, like, verses, you know, I haven't been known to sing the wrong verses, but I love to sing. And it's, again, it's about finding a place where you can be part of, where you hook into something so much bigger than your own, you know, tightly wrapped mind. So I write about it because I raised my child in the church, because I was baptized, I was given life there. I did and never knew and never to this day figured out much. You know, it's all pretty mysterious to me, but, they, but I'm in, you know. <laughs> I got in, and they said, "We, you know, we want you. You're welcome here. It's a come-as-you-are party, exactly as you are. The message Jesus said, I want you. You're in, you're here. You're mine. Contrast that, the truth of what you're saying and the beauty of what you're saying to uh, a broader evangelical community that would, uh, that probably a smaller, very loud a uh, group of which would contend with your political views, would contend with some of your theological ideas, and do so in a way that is, uh, that is vehement, that is, that is uh, de- deceptive and manipulative. How, how do you 
uh, as a writer, have those things said about you and keep the faith, keep your love for the church, uh, keep your sanity for mm-hmm. that matter. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It, you, I used to get a lot more attention from the fundamental right, the far right in America. I remember just getting some bizarre calls in the South when I would be on, on the local NPR or you know in the deep South and people would call. I remember this one woman, it was so wild. She said, well, hello, Miss Lamont. Welcome to wherever I was. Um, Tennessee and she said I just wonder how funny you're going to seem when you're rotting in hell (laughs) and I and um wow but you know Paul Tillich famously said that the opposite of faith isn't doubt it's certainty and for people to be so certain that I'm doomed they're fine their their mothers were better than mine and I'm doomed is the basic position um is crazy to me. And so I have learned to say, oh, thank you for calling. You know, um, or the universal sign of, or like, can we go to the next caller now? Because 90% would be very sweet. would be saying, I ran out of my church. I hated my church. I hate it still what it does to, what it tells people about themselves. I hate what it does to children who haven't come out yet. I hate what it tells girls about girls and where their value comes. And I hate, I hate that, but I do love Jesus. Let, let, let me ask you something. You, you mentioned that you were, you're about to turn 60. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times people come to a certain age and they say, you know, whatever success I've made of my life, I've made it. Or whatever mess I've made of my life, I've made it. And now I need to kind of take stock of it and say, you know, Richard Rohr talks about you, you spend half your life building this container. Mm-hmm. And then you spend the second half of your life trying to figure out what do you want, what do you want to put in that container? Or how to get out. Well, yeah, yeah. Build it around See, yourself. I think storyline is how to get out. Of the, get of out what, of the container? Of what, yeah, how to get well, out of the container. So, so are you thinking about that at all? Are you thinking about who, who, is, who am I if I'm not writing, if I'm not funny, if I'm not on speaking engagements? Just fundamentally, who am I? Do you ever think about that? Well, of course. I think about um, that because it's the central question of our existence. But at the same time, by the time you're 60... Um, you've seen people so much younger die and you understand what a vulnerable species we are. You think everything's kind of going away and the phone rings and you realize somebody who is 40 is having a biopsy and people are worried and they have little ones. And the phone, the mail comes, the email comes. Do you have a minute? Did you hear? Did you turn on the, turn on the TV? Turn on the TV. And... Um, and what, I mean, I think the reason that our work is, it, we're so um, similar in both our material and our, the heart stories is that we both have felt so trapped in who we had agreed to be. And, um, and it's like so scary to say, I'm not sure that's who I really am. I'm really sorry but I'm not going to be that anymore. I'm off. I love you and I'm off and I'll be back. And, um, and I got to find out, you know, it's the sacred journey. It's the hero's journey. It's all of great literature. And um, it's scary. 
and it's um, exhilarating, and it's really, most of all, deeply inconvenient, right? Because you're in the container, and everybody, people need you to be a certain way, to do this for them. You've always before done that for them. When they call you, say, of course I'll do that. And you look at your calendar. If you have children, you know really pretty much exactly what you're going to be doing. <laughs> you know, I mean, I have a grandchild, and I really know exactly what three days almost. And then there'll be the loveliness and the, the radical silliness and the surprises and stepping on the cosmic banana peel and the last person on earth that I expected to help me up, helping me up, and the, or, you know, whatever. But um, that's the question we're here to, to discover is who are we and in the face of death and our vulnerability, how are we supposed to live? Are you going to pull in? Well, you would say, no, we're going to blow it open. We're going to blow it open. It's sort of like, uh, you know what, it's like pickup sticks where you, you, you put them all in, down on the table and you pick the easy ones. Well, I'm, I'm a woman, I'm a sober alcoholic, I'm a mom, I'm a grandmother, I'm the daughter of two dead parents, I'm a cousin, I'm a very active person in my family, very active in recovery, I'm a, an activist, I'm politically very plugged in, I'm kind of a slacker in a lot of ways, I'm kind of an OCD slacker, which is um, <laughs> an interesting calm grill, you know, mixed grill, but, um, and, but you pick the stuff you're sure of, and then you often have to break the stack of clumped together um, pickup sticks together, right, to find out what is true, what is, and, and what can you do? What could you do later today? Say we get you home by 10. What could you do? Can you carve out a tiny space to begin your work tomorrow? even not knowing what you're doing? Can you get, the, you know, get that old feeling of childhood back when you just get the pencils ready? You know? Can you find the socks that are so cushiony? Because tomorrow you really, really could go for a walk. And I would go for a walk every single day. And you'd go for a walk too, and you know you'd feel fantastic. You know you would experience the Holy Spirit. You know you would see the glory of God and hear it in birdsong and hear it in underfoot. So um, what can you still do? What are you supposed to be doing? You know, this risk telling the story again of when my friend Pammy was dying and I uh, asked her and she was in a wheelchair with a wig with an 18-month-old daughter, my goddaughter, and I said, does this dress make me look fat? And um, she said, Annie, you don't have that kind of time. She was 37 and she had a month. She had less than a month and she said, you don't have that kind of time. So that's what storyline is. That's what Christianity is about. It's about waking up. It's about getting the plant mister out and spritzing yourself awake. Am I going to be, am I going to keep doing what I've always done that has always left me feeling empty and um, numb? You get to. You get your hundred psychic dollars a day. You get to. And I understand if it's very frightening for you to try something different. But if you could go in and pull out one pickup stick that is definitely going to leave the table much different than it was and maybe lose you a turn, make it easier for someone else to get some points, God, if you could do that, that would be so, so exciting for um, everyone that you know after they got over the resentment that, um, <laughs> that you wanted your life back. You had decided to claim your life. Get to know it. It's another image would be if a mural 
fell down, and you, all you could do was start to get to know each of those tile chips. And it, you'd never quite notice how beautiful orange and certain blues are. You would never wear orange and blues, but you're playing with the tiles, you're getting to know them. You're trying them out here. You're gonna just work on this little corner. The bad critical voices will say, what's that gonna get us? We're gonna do two by two quarter? I don't know. What's gonna get me is I never notice how beautiful oranges and blues are. That's all I'm gonna do. And the tiles are different depths. And I just wanna feel them. Because when I feel them, I'm like alive. I just feel really alive, like a child with fingerprints. I just wanna do it for another hour. That's what I'm gonna do. Take it or leave it. That's what I have to offer. Do it for an hour, and then we're gonna all see what works for the common good. So um, I'll tell you where, what I'm breaking through right now, my container. The container for me, because all of my suffering is mental, all of it is mental, all of it is this disease of good ideas, of thinking that I know what would be best for everyone and how people should proceed. I really believe that if I had the time to sit with all 1,700 of you, I could help each and every one of you. And if you have children, teenagers that are in trouble, I could help them also. Um, And left to my own devices, I would want to. But I'm in recovery for that because that's a fatal and progressive disease also. And, um, and the box that I'm in is this mental um, thinking. I, this, I, I've been calling it victimized self-righteousness lately because if I feel a little bit victimized, whoa, is that familiar? And that self-righteousness where you feel superior, that's what some of the very, the most awful racism and homophobia in the country is about, is at least you're better than (laughs) this batch of people. You may have destroyed the lives of everybody in your family, but you're still better than them, right? And I get this self-righteousness, and I get this sense of being victimized. And I've gotten to the point, the miracle The meat tenderizer of grace has brought me to a place where I'm catching it. Instead of having it for several days, um, it's like my base camp. That's how I survived alcoholism in my childhood was I felt victimized. I tried to control and fix and rescue and I felt better than because I wasn't destroying children. Anyway. Let me, we're we're almost out of time here and I'd like you to give some writing advice to our audience. Okay. Um, Well, you know, the bad news is you just have to do it. It's like exercise, you know? It's like exercise. You, um, I never wait for inspiration. I very rarely, I had an inspiration the other day. It was funny, but I usually don't. Usually I have one story or even a fragment of a story that I'm pretty sure I could tell. And um, you just do it. You sit down, you commit to having your butt in the chair for a certain amount of time. And there really, there really are algorithms. Two hours buys you one hour, 15 minutes. And there's no way around it because that's what the spiritual life is like. It's not efficient. It's not linear and it's not based on reason. And you say, I'm gonna sit down for two hours. I'm gonna sit down for an hour and 45 minutes, which buys you an hour. I'm gonna sit down for four hours. 
I had three today. I had three hours, 15 minutes. I'm just going to sit down. I'm just going to do it. And it's really only the first part that is awful. It's like being, you know, we all have at this age, you get arthritis and everything hurts a little bit. And injuries never heal. I just want to tell you. Uh, They heal like two years later when something else has come up. And, uh, And as your vision has failed you completely. And... um. You sit down and you just do it. And you, you shake through the arthritis. And you say to yourself, like I would say to you if you were really stuck, I'd say, well, what about that one story? Well, this was Bob's story. But say um, you had tried to create a church for some people that weren't getting married and it didn't work. And so they had the wedding on the lawn. Well, anyone in their right mind would prefer to have the wedding on the lawn, right? So it's kind of a great story because... Um, it turned out to have the intention of providing a sacred building under which to take on the blessing of relationship. And at the same time, you were under this, it was much, 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 much bigger because you were under the infinite sky, right? And you were in, the, in breath. And, um, and, and you say, I know, but it, I, I don't think it really goes anywhere. I'd say, but just tell that story. It's, it's a page and a half. And you'd say, well, I could tell it, but then you'd start explaining to me, like Naaman, why you weren't really going to, right? That you didn't think I was quite getting what kind of story you're good at telling. And I would say, but I think it would be okay with Bob if you told that story, and it's a very sweet story. Why don't you just do it? You ain't got anything better going on, you know? (laughs) And, uh, and, uh, And then you would do it, but the thing is you get tricked because you're in the cold water. Remember being a little kid on little swim classes and swim teams, and you'd be blue, you'd be a little blue child, and they'd make you get in the water, and you'd weigh like one pound, you'd be a little blue one pound being, and you'd get in the water, but after about eight minutes, you'd be really warm, you'd be laughing, Laughter is the, is the um, key that grace has arrived and, uh, and that your things are going to be semi-okay, which is what we can really hope for. And so when you sit down and you write that little bit that you could possibly do, you're in and you're going to warm up and the arthritis is going to be better and you're going to start to say to yourself as a writer, well, what if, what if from there... I went to something that just happened in Nashville with um, this or that. And, and the voices again are going to go say, well, I think that's kind of f- like faking it. or for-, But it's all faking it and forcing it. It's all stitches, all knitting p- bits of quilt together. And you try them out. If they don't work, you get out the seam ripper. You know, but if you get, you figure out what doesn't work, maybe you're a little tiny bit closer to figuring out what does work. And then you remember, like I always remember anything I've written that either of you have ever liked or anyone here has ever liked began as an god-awful first draft. It was 12, 13, 14 pages of what turned out to be a six-page story. I spewed. I gave way too many details. I, um, but that's the way you work. You that's dump the it way all I write. Then, right. I don't find the beginning until page three. The ending is almost always on page 11, you know, so that as a r- rule of thumb. And, um, <laughs> And, but you get it all down because that's what kids do. And you just get it all down and you, and you kind of beat back the really awful voices in your mind like you'd run interference for me and you go, no one is ever going to be sick of you telling the same old stories with the same old voice. That's why we keep showing up. I go, oh, I kind of mule, oh, oh, oh. 
and then I go, well, I'll put in one more hour. I'll tell that one story you like. I don't know if it goes next, but I'll just do it. And it's a trick. And you get in and you write your terrible first draft. And then the worst is over. And then you have pages. You don't have this unassaulted ice flow anymore. You have pages. You have rhythm. You have memories. You have visions. You have ideas. You have stuff you overheard. You have stuff you bothered to get down. You have stuff you'd love to come upon. And it's badly written. And it's a miracle. And then you say to yourself, I did it. And then you, that, you know, the next, and then you have the secret. It's like being a Christian, you have a secret with you all the time that you're loved and chosen against all odds. And the secret of being a writer is that against all odds, you got your work done for that day. And the next day, it's gonna be a lot easier because you're either gonna know what to do, what lily pad, all you have to do is capture that one lily pad that we talked about in the car. I agree. That's all you have to do. I agree. And then the end of that day, you're going to have a really bad draft. It's going to be too long and there's going to be too many details. And, um, and I'm going to be able to go, I got it. I got, can I have it? Give it to me. And you will. And I'm going to cut. I'm going to paste. I'm going to go, here is your beginning. Do you see what I mean? It's right here. It's at the bottom of page one. It's right there. Then do it. Then here, think about it. I'm asking you to consider ending it a couple pages earlier. You don't need to tell us what the story is about because you told us the story. All you have to offer us is the story. You know, so um, that's pretty much every single thing I know about writing. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.